This is a multimedia presentation, so we'll be screening on the wall over there. Hopefully you can all see it. If you can't, you can move over to this side. Okay, Rabbi Mark Glickman was ordained at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1990. He is rabbi of Temple B'nai Tikva in Calgary, Alberta, where you just arrived, right? And he tells me it's a nice and balmy five degrees today. He writes a regular religion column for the Seattle Times and has been featured in many other books and journals. His book on the Cairo Geniza has been featured on Public Radio International's The World, The Jewish Daily Forward, and elsewhere. On January 1st, 2000, the Tacoma News Tribune named Rabbi Glickman one of the 20 people to watch for the century. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Mark Glickman for our program today. This one works, yes? Thank you, Ari, for that wonderful introduction. What a joy it is to be here in a beautiful and warm Orange County. Thank you to my friend and colleague, Rabbi Heidi Cohn, and my old friend, the interim executive director here, Esther Hurst, for helping make this make this afternoon possible. And it's a joy to be here with you in particular because today you've given me the opportunity to speak about a story that has been something of an obsession of mine for the past several years, and that's the story of the Cairo Geniza. Now, when we speak about a uh, Geniza, the Cairo Geniza, it begs an obvious question, namely, very good. You know, all these shills. It's wonderful. What's a Geniza? Good. And in order to understand what a Geniza is, I will remind you that we Jews are amongst the world's most inveterate word nerds. We love words, don't we? We study them. We dissect them. We, we explore them, and we try to wring uh, uh, out of them every morsel of meaning we possibly can, literally and, and, uh, uh, and symbolically, and sometimes even pictographically and numerically. And that's because our tradition considers words, in particular the printed word, to be at least potentially uh, something very, very sacred, a sacred packet of meaning that it can con connect one soul, one person with another, even across vast expanses of, of time and space. And as a result, Jewish tradition, as you may know, forbids the disposal of our sacred religious texts. So if you have a prayer book that gets torn, if you have a volume of the Talmud whose binding cracks and you can no, no longer use it, and of course even more so if you have a Torah scroll whose letters get faded and chipped away so that you can't read it anymore, you are not allowed to throw those things away ever. So what are you supposed to do with these things? With these very uh, sac these sacred, these, these uh, uh, literally indisposable sacred Jewish texts when you can't use them anymore. Well, one option is to bury them. You, and customarily, text, these texts are buried often near the grave of a great scholar or, or sage. But of course, if every time a prayer book of yours falls apart, you have to schlep out to the cemetery and dig a grave for the thing, it becomes a little bit of a hassle. So the other option is to put these unusable but very literally indisposable texts into a... 
you knew it all along, didn't you? Yes, into a geniza. And a geniza is a, often a, an attic or a closet or a cellar in the synagogue that acts, and typically they're in synagogues, that acts as, as something of a sacred document dump, a place where you put the, the, these texts that, that, uh, they, that you can't use anymore. Now, typically what happens is that a community will, and historically it's been this way, a community would allow the, the pile of texts in their geniza to grow and stew for a few years, and then periodically they would take the text out and they would, uh, they would empty their geniza and they would bury the, 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 da the damaged books and documents in a cemetery. So the, periodically the genizas would be emptied. That's what usually happened, but not always. And here we get to the story of the Cairo Geniza. Now, when we speak of the Cairo Geniza, we are more specifically speaking of the Geniza at the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Cairo, Egypt. You can go there today, if you dare travel to Egypt today, you have to be careful of the, the, the politics of the week over there, but today the the Ben Ezra Synagogue is maintained as a tourist attra attraction by the Egyptian government, and it's a beautiful synagogue. Um, most of the, the Jews, the, the small handful of Jews that still remain in Cairo worship at another newer synagogue downtown, but the Cairo, the Ben Ezra Synagogue is still there. We, it was built on that spot, we believe, as early as the 8th century, destroyed and rebuilt in the 11th century, and, and it's been on that spot ever since. And for years, the Geniza at the Ben Ezra Synagogue was kind of hiding in plain sight. Nobody paid much attention to it, but everybody knew that the Ben Ezra Synagogue had a There's Rabbi Cohn. Hello, it's good to see you. Um, uh, um, but every, everybody knew that the Ben Ezra Synagogue had a Geniza. Why? Because it was a synagogue. And so as a synagogue, it had an ark for the Torah scrolls, it had rafters in the ceiling like all buildings did, and because it was a synagogue, it, it certainly had a Geniza. The first outsider to pay any attention whatsoever to the Cairo Geniza uh, didn't come along until the mid-1700s. He was a man, we don't know much about him, we know a little bit about him. His name was Simon von Geldern. Unfortunately, I don't have any pictures of Simon von Geldern, but apparently he was quite the character. He was a German, he, he, Simon von Geldern was your typical German, Jewish, marauding, Bedouin sheikh. Uh, <laughs> He was a German Jew who would travel to the Middle East and go on all kinds of adventures, and somehow he got selected to be the sheikh of this marauding band of German, of German, of, of Jewish Bedouins in North Africa. And at one point, they marauded their way into Cairo, where Simon von Geldern asked to see the Geniza. Now, this guy was sort of a proto-Jewish Lawrence of Arabia type character. He would come back to Germany periodically wearing long Middle Eastern robes and a, a turban. They called him, they called him uh, uh, the Oriental One. They called him Chevalier, the Knight. And it said that women melted in his presence. And uh, when he went to see the Geniza, he popped his head up into the Geniza, evidently, of the Ben Ezra Synagogue, and said something to the effect of, wow, it looks like there's a lot of stuff up here. And that's all we heard about the Geniza. It's all we heard about it for about a century. And in the, the, in the late 18... Let me make sure my... my uh, this, is, this isn't working. Uh, 
Oh, there, there we go. In, 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 the, in the late 1850s, 1859 to be precise, this man vi- visited the synagogue, J- Jacob Safir. I call him Mr. Smiley. Uh, <laughs> Rabbi Smiley, to be precise. He was a uh, Jerusalem-born rab- rab- rabbi who lived in Europe, and he was a dealer in, in old Jewish man- manuscripts. And in 1859, he, tra- he traveled to Cairo, and he, he asked to see the Geniza at the Ben Ezra Synagogue. They said, oh, I'm sorry, sir, we can't, we can't let you see the Geniza. Why not? He said, well, they said, well, the Geniza, you see, it's guarded by a serpent, and the serpent doesn't let anyone visit. Well, Sophia came back about five years afterwards, and as I picture this encounter, I picture him kind of like Columbo. You remember Columbo? He said, I, you know, I, I was thinking about your uh, serpent up there, and I was wondering, <laughs> if I were to maybe hypothetically slip you a little cash under the table, would that maybe make your serpent a little bit more lenient in terms of who he allows to go in and see the Geniza? They said, yes, yes, as a matter of fact, that would work. <laughs> and so he slipped, he slipped the, the, the caretakers of the synagogue a little bit of cash, and he came away with a few thousand documents, old Jewish manuscripts to sell to his customers. Around the same time, Boy, this isn't working very well, is it? Um, This man came to see the Cairo Geniza, Abraham Firkovich. Abraham Firkovich was a Karaite. The Karaites were a group of Jews that denied the authority of rabbinic interpretation of Torah. If you can believe Jews denying the authority of their rabbis, I know it's hard to fathom, but it used to happen. In the Middle Ages, there were tens of thousands of Karaites who lived in North Africa, many of them in Cairo. By this time, the community had grown much smaller by the 19th century and had moved to its population center to Crimea. Firkovich was something of a historian of the Karaite community. And they sent him out on an expedition to seek um, documentation, uh, uh, to seek historical documents to uh, document the history of the Karaite community. He was something of a scoundrel. If he was looking for a document that he couldn't find, it was not beyond him to sort of create that document himself. Uh, But he went to uh, Cairo, and he he too came away with thousands of documents from what he said were the the Genizas of Cairo. And scholars think that the majority of them came from the Geniza at the Ben Ezra Synagogue. And he brought them back for further study with him to to Russia. And look at this guy. you know that he was a, the basis for a character in later American cinema, don't you? Can you tell who it was the ba- ba- basis? No, no, it was clear that, I mean, it, that, that can't be a coincidence, you know. Maybe, maybe without the trafe on his shoulder, but... Um, uh, so, in, in the late 1800s, the Geniza was visited by this man, Elka Nathan Adler, the son and later the brother of chief rabbis of Great Britain. Adler was an, an attorney, a successful attorney, who was a collector of old Jewish manuscripts and in time became a, a, an expert himself in, the, in, in, in these manuscripts and in the truths that they revealed. He, um, he went to visit Cairo when they were doing some renovations on the synagogue and 
And they gave him a Torah cover, the story goes, and told him that he could go to the Geniza and take as many, many documents away as he could fit in the Torah cover. Uh, he, he came, it's like in a candy store, you know, where you have the bag and you can take as much as you fit in the bag. He came out with about 6,000 documents, we believe. Later, he purchased many more and in time became, uh, and there's some interesting stories about how he got those documents, which I don't have time to get into now, but I'll just tell you, it involves uh, a a shady Austrian count and some very cloak and dagger type stuff, and I'm afraid you'll have to read the book to hear about that. (laughs) But... um, he, in time, had the largest collection of, the, the largest private collection of antiquarian Jewish manuscripts in the world. When he got swindled out of some money uh, in a bad uh, business deal in the 20s, he had to sell most of his collection. Nowadays, uh, a few hundred of his documents are at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, my alma mater. Um, uh, the vast majority are at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. But the real modern story of the Cairo Geniza begins uh, not in Cairo, but in, of all places, Cambridge, England, on May 13, 1896. It was a beautiful, sunny spring day in Cambridge that day. I learned that in my research, by the way. You can call the library up and ask them things like, what was the weather like in Cambridge, England on May 13, 1896? And they can tell you that. Uh, it was a be- beautiful, su- sunny day. And that, on that beautiful sunny day, late in the morning, there was a chance encounter between two individuals that would forever change the face of modern Jewish scholarship. One of those individuals is somebody whose name might be familiar to you, Rabbi Solomon Schechter. Is this a familiar name? You probably know his name because uh, after this whole chapter in his life, he came to the United States and became one of the founding fathers of conservative Judaism here in the United States. Uh, he's a fascinating man, born into a Chabad family, a Hasidic family in a little shtetl, a little fiddler-on-the-roof type town in Romania. Uh, and uh, early in his life, in a series of moves, both Spirit, both geographically and intellectually, he moved to the West. He shed the black hat of his childhood, and uh, he became a, sco- a scholar specializing in the analysis of ancient Jewish manuscripts. And by this point in his life, he's in his mid-40s, and he is the only Jewish faculty member at Cambridge University. It must have been a very lonely existence for him, this, this Chabad this nice Jewish boy from the Chabad family in Cambridge, England, of all places. But he established himself in certain social circles around um, in Cambridge, and uh, he was doing some errands on King's Parade, the main drag in downtown Cambridge, when he came upon this woman here, Agnes Smith Lewis. Now, you may notice that Agnes Smith Lewis bears a certain resemblance to this woman here, Margaret Dunlop Gibson. That's because these two women were not only sisters, they were identical twins. Fascinating women in their own right. I could have written a book all about them if I had had time, although a couple people have already done so. These These twin sisters, they were born in Scotland, 
Their father was a, su a successful attorney. He provided them with the, uh, with the finest in boarding school educations where they specialized, where, where, where they excelled, particularly in languages. They were proficient, the sisters were proficient in no fewer than 14 languages between the two of them by the time that all was said and done. They were fiercely devoted to each other for their whole lives. With the exception of just a few months, they lived together for their whole lives. Each was married for a short time. Each accompanied the other on her honeymoon. Each of the husbands died after just a few years of marriage. Hmm. And when the sisters would grieve, you know, how do we grieve? We sometimes, you know, curl up in our homes, we eat, we do whatever it is that brings us comfort. They like to travel. And here, I'm not talking about weekend excursions out into the mountains. No, they would take multi-month, often multi-continent uh, excursions. They, too, were interested in old manuscripts. They were Presbyterians, so they were particularly interested in uh, Christian manuscripts, but they were very enlightened, open-minded, educated Presbyterians. And so they were also interested in Jewish documents because to them, of course, Judaism was the mother religion of their own. So, for example, a few years before this whole Geniza thing happened with them that I'll get to in a moment, one of their husbands died, and the other sister said, as, you know, shortly after that, they said, she said, you know, let's go to Mount Sinai. I hear there's a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai where there are some interesting old manuscripts. Well, it turns out that there were some interesting old manuscripts at this monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai, only they were written in Syriac. Syriac is a long, defunct dialect of, of Aramaic that is one of the few languages that the sisters weren't proficient in. They couldn't sign up for Syriac 101 at the local university. Why not? They, they did teach it, but somebody over here said it. They were women, and, and Cambridge still had a no-girls-allowed policy. So they did the university one step better. They, uh, they hired one of the Syriac instructors at Cambridge to come to their home. Their home was called Castlebray. It was a very large mansion in Cambridge to tutor Mrs. Lewis every week in Syriac, and in, within a few months, she became proficient in the language. The day came, they sailed from England to Alexandria, Egypt. They took a train from Alexandria to Cairo. They took a carriage from Cairo to the Red Sea. They sailed across the Red Sea and embarked on an 11-day camel schlep across the Sinai Peninsula to get to Mount Sinai, where, to make a long story short, they found one of the, the, the oldest known Christian Bibles to exist in the world. It's, it's one of the two very oldest Syriac versions of the Christian Bible, dating back to about the fourth century. So these two women weren't anything to sneeze at. Uh, they called them affectionately in Cambridge, they called them the Gibloos, Mrs. Gibson and Mrs. Lewis, the Gibloos, you get it? Um, so on this spring day, uh, Solomon Schechter runs into Mrs. Lewis on King's Parade, the main drag, 
And he says, she says to him, well, Rabbi Schechter, how wonderful it is that I've run into you. You know, my, my sister and I, it's funny that I run into you today because my sister and I were just talking about you. As you may know, we just went on another trip to the Middle East where we purchased some, do some documents and we've been able to identify the vast majority of them, but a few of them we still haven't been able to identify. And we were just saying that we should have you over sometime to see if you can help us identify these documents. Would you be interested? Now, I'm sure that you know, what, what Rabbi Schechter said was, why, of course I would be interested in seeing that, Mrs. Lewis. I'm sure on the inside he was saying, would I be interested? Oh, boy, yes. So uh, they chatted for a few minutes. They, they said their goodbyes. Mrs. Lewis continued on her errands. And Rabbi Schechter made a beeline right over to Castlebray. Uh, the cars weren't parked in front of it that day. <laughs> Although it is said that the Giblus had the very first automobile in Cambridge. Um, nowadays, Castlebrain, this is only about half of the house. Nowadays, it's a dormitory for the uh, students, for the handful of students who go to the univer university. Uh, Rabbi Schechter walked up the driveway. He knocked on the front door. Either Mrs. Gibson, the other sister, or one of the eight servants who lived in the house... This is very Downton Abbey kind of stuff here. One of them opened the door for him, welcomed him in, and brought him to the dining room, which I don't know if you can see it. It's right behind these French doors here, where they sat down at the table, and a small bundle of manuscripts were brought out. After a few minutes, Mrs. Lewis returned from her errands, and the two sisters and Rabbi Schechter started to page through these documents. He looked at the first few of them, and he said, why, these are from the Jerusalem Talmud. You know, there are two Talmuds. The one we study most is the Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud, we don't study as much. There aren't as many old manuscripts. He said, these might be of some value. And then Rabbi Schechter came. Uh, am I going the wrong way here? Wait, why is it? Why is it? We'll get there. Hang on. Maybe to that document, and his heart skipped a beat. And in one of the great understatements of modern scholarship, Rabbi Schechter said, and this manuscript might be of some value too. <laughs> he paused for a moment, he said, may I borrow this manuscript? Yes, of course, Rabbi Schechter. May I publish this manuscript? if it would contribute to modern scholarship, Rabbi Schechter, of course. So very carefully, Solomon Schechter packed up this rattered and tattered old piece of paper in, into his case, and he walked out of Castlebury, not certain, but thinking that maybe, just maybe, the piece of paper that he was carrying with him represented a page from a book that had last been seen almost a thousand years earlier. He wasn't certain, but he thought that this might be a page from the, from the original Hebrew of the book of Ben Sirah. Now, Ben Sirah may sound vaguely familiar to some of you. If we had a group of Catholics here, it would probably sound more familiar because the book of Ben Sirah is a biblical era book. It's wisdom literature, kind of like the book's book of, Pro of Proverbs. But for a variety of reasons, when it came time to decide which books were going to make it into the Hebrew Bible, Ben Sirah didn't make the cut. 
Later, Catholic scholars came to it and identified what they thought to be some Catholic theology in there, so they put it back into Catholic Bibles in the Apocrypha section of the Catholic Bibles, right near the, the Book of Maccabees and other such books. But the version that they put in the Catholic Bible came from a later Greek translation of the original Hebrew of the book of Ben Sira. The last person to have reported seeing the original Hebrew of Ben Sira was the great Babylonian sage, Sadia Gaon, and he had died in the year 952. And since then, nobody had seen this book. It was referred to in a bunch of places. They knew it existed, but nobody had seen it. And for Schechter, this was a much more than just passing interest, because a few years earlier, a non-Jewish scholar had, had written about the original Hebrew of Ben Sira, and he tried to poo-poo the importance of it. It probably wasn't even originally in Hebrew. If it was, it wouldn't be in a very authoritative text. We don't need to bother ourselves with the original Hebrew of Ben Sira. Schechter said no. He pounced on it. He said, here are all the citations in the ancient literature. I can prove, A, that it was originally in Hebrew, and B, it was a, a very significant text. And the two scholars went back and forth. Now, of course, the arguments were, were purely theoretical at the time because the actual original Hebrew of the Book of Ben Sirah had long been lost to history, or so everybody thought. And there, at the Castlebrae dining room table, Schechter sees what he thinks might be a page from the original Hebrew. He realizes that he's got to get his hands on a Catholic Bible to, make, to, to verify that it's a match. He knew that the Giblus weren't going to have a Catholic Bible on their Presbyterian bookshelves. He certainly wasn't going to have one on his rabbinic bookshelf. So he makes a beeline right to the university library. He pulls a Catholic Bible off the shelf opens it up, and almost immediately, ding, 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 the bells and whistles in his mind start to sound. This is it. He's seeing a page of the original Hebrew of Ben Sira. hasn't been seen in almost a 1,000 years. Immediately, he grabs a piece of stationery from the library, and he dashes off a note to Mrs. Lewis. And we still have that note, and I love to share, share it just because you can see, even in his, in his handwriting, the excitement of the, uh, the, uh, the, mo mo the moment. He says, Dear Mrs. Lewis, I think we have reason to congratulate ourself, uh, ourselves for the fragments I took with me. Oh, Ben Sierra is also, is also called Ecclesiasticus. Not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, that's something else, Ecclesiasticus. He says, that the, piece, the fragment I took with me represents a piece of the original Hebrew of Ecclesiasticus. It is the first thing such a thing was discovered. Please do not yet speak about the matter till tomorrow. I'll come to you tomorrow about 11 p.m. I think he meant a.m., but he was very excited uh, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, and, uh, talk the matter over with you, how to make the matter known. In haste and great excitement, yours sincerely, Solomon Schechter. In other words, this is it, a piece of the original Hebrew of the book of Ben Sirah. Don't say anything to anyone. I'll come over tomorrow, and we'll figure out how to make the announcement. He posts the letter, and by the time he gets out of the library, he spills the beans to three or four of his friends. <laughs> He heads straight home, he walks through his front door, and he says, Wife, he bellows out, as long as the Bible lives, my name shall not die. This was not one of his humblest, humbler <laughs> moments. Uh, he, they decide later that they can't wait until the next day. They get together that, af that afternoun, and they made the annou announcement immediately to the, 
the sort of late 19th century British equivalent of scholar, some scholarly blogs. They sent out the equivalent, the, the announcement, to some newsletters covering these kinds of issues at the time. And, and almost immediately, uh, librarians around Europe were started, started saying to themselves, the original Hebrew of Ben Sira. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder if we have any of that. And they started going through their old piles of Hebrew manuscripts. And within a few weeks, the librarians at the Bodleian Library at Oxford, the rival library, found not only several more pages of the original Hebrew of Ben Sira, but some of the pages that they found were from the very same copy of the book of Ben Sira that, that, uh, that Schechter had identified at the Giblu's dining room ta table. Um, Oh, boy, this is frustrating. I'm sorry. This isn't, there we go. Uh, so Schechter realizes that he's got to, that, you know, he had heard murmurings about the Cairo Geniza. He realizes that he's got to get there and check this thing out himself. Who knows? There might be more Bensira in there. There might be other treasures as well. He couldn't, the, it, it was May when he saw those first documents. He couldn't make the arrangements to get there until the end of the year. But he travels to Cairo. He spends a few days schmoozing, drinking coffee, smoking some cigarettes with the uh, rabbi and the lay leaders of the Cairo Jew Jewish community. And soon, he gets them to give him permission to check out the uh, Geniza at the Ben Ezra Synagogue. So on the appointed day, he meets the rabbi. They ride across, across town to, um, uh, to Fustat. Fustat is the oldest neighborhood of Cairo. I should say, the reason he was able to connect Ben Sira with the Cairo Geniza is that some of the documents in the, in the Giblu's collection was, were labeled as having come from Fustat. Fustat is, as I said, the oldest neighborhood in Cairo. So on the, on the day that he makes the appoint, appointment, he rides with the rabbi, he gets to Fustat. Fustat is mostly in ruins at this point, but they had just done some renovations on the synagogue. Ben Ezra synagogue was in pretty good, good, good shape. He walks into the synagogue, and this isn't a great picture. This was taken during some re renovations in the late 90s. The, this is taken from uh, the balcony. Who would sit on the balcony in an Orthodox synagogue? The women, right? We're facing the east wall here. here here's the ark. Schechter wa walks in, and he looks up from the main floor, way up high on the eastern wall of the synagogue, above the women's balcony, under that arch there, and he sees the entry to the Cairo Geniza. The rabbi says to the caretakers of the synagogue, this is Rabbi Schechter. He's from England, very important man. He's come here to see the Geniza. They nod their heads and they walk him outside. And Schechter couldn't understand why they were taking him out of the synagogue at first until he realized that the only way to get up to uh, the women's bal balcony was by means of an exterior staircase on this side of the building. So he comes in the side of the building, he makes a left and a couple of rights, and soon he's standing right underneath the entryway to the Geniza. They put a rickety old ladder up to the Geniza, they hand him a lantern, they invite him to proceed. So Solomon Schechter climbs the, la the ladder, holding his lantern. He steps into the Geniza, and the first thing he becomes aware of is the dust, clouds of dust. Every movement he made stirred up clouds of ancient dust, so he had to stand very still. And in just a moment, after just a moment, the dust clouds parted, and Solomon Schechter couldn't believe what he was saying, seeing, because there, in front of him, 
in this attic, dusty old attic chamber, the synagogue in Cairo, Egypt, there sat a mountain of old Jewish texts. Now you have to understand, up until this moment, there were 10,000 or fewer antiquarian Jewish manuscripts known to exist in the world. The pile that Schechter was looking at in the Geniza turns out to have numbered upwards of 300,000 manuscripts. He started to take a quick look at what was there. There were a lot of things in Arabic. His Arabic wasn't really strong. He knew he'd have to put those aside for later. There were lots of prayer books. There were poetry. There were some biblical texts that looked like, like, uh, like they weren't quite the, the, the same as the biblical text. They looked like there were slight variations from the biblical text that, that we've inherited today. There were what looked like business documents and court records and and, and children's books and all kinds of things. And from that moment on, Solomon Schechter knew that his life was going to be different. Schechter stepped out of the Geniza, he made a nice little donation to the synagogue. They told him he could take whatever he wanted. The problem, as he later wrote, is that he wanted it all, but he couldn't take it all. But he immediately hired some assistants and they uh, helped him pack up what he estimated were about 100,000 manuscripts to send back to Cambridge for further study. Turns out his count was way off. The real number was closer to 190,000 manuscripts. While he was there, the Giblus came for a visit. Um, the Giblus, by the way, they were early adopters of technology. They loved gadgets and technology of all kinds. I told you they had the first car in Cambridge. They uh, stood at the, at the, at the, on the on the balcony, they at first didn't feel like climbing up to see the Geniza because they weren't feeling well that day, but they described watching some of Schechter's assistants run up the ladder and jump in, and they could hear them trouncing around inside the Geniza with the documents crunching under their feet. Um, they decided that they did want to go up and take a picture of the Geniza, but it turns out they had this fancy new camera that they had bought just for the trip that they had forgotten back at their hotel. And so it wasn't until 2010 that the first usable photographs of the Cairo Geniza were taken. But more about that later. Schechter gets back to Cambridge. They give him a room in the library to study the manuscripts. And you can get a sense from this picture of the size and the magnitude and the chaos of the collection that he was studying. This is probably a posed photo because what we know is that the first thing he did when he got back is he hired a dream team of scholars to help him unpack this stuff. Uh, one person did the rabbinic material, one person did the Arabic material, there was the Giblus to do the Syriac, of course, and they, they, he hired several other scholars. So there were people walking in and out. Here you have a picture of the lone scholar sitting, studying this massive amount of material. Well, what did they find? As it turns out, they, as they were going through these manuscripts, they found a lot. So, for example, this, this is one of the manuscripts that Solomon Schechter himself studied. It's called the Damascus Document. It was a rule book of some ancient breakaway sect during a Jewish sect in antiquity. And it took Schechter a while to put it together, but eventually he realized that in the 8th century, there were some people, perhaps Karaites, who had traveled from Cairo to the land of Israel. And they were poking around in some caves near Jericho and they found some old canisters with some manuscripts in them and they copied down a couple of them and brought them back to Cairo. To Cairo. 
caves near Jericho with some old manuscripts. Sound familiar? What was he looking at? Solomon Schechter was looking at an early copy of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, of course, he didn't know that they were, this was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves wouldn't be discovered for another 50 years. But it turns out that early copies of the, those scrolls had made their way into the Cairo Geniza. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Come on, come on. Uh, I had it there for a second. Uh, by the way, what is the most widely spoken language among the Jewish people today? English. English, good, by far, right? Most American Jews speak English. Most Israeli Jews speak English. That's about 80% of us. What was it a century ago? Yiddish. I used to think it was Yiddish. That would have been a very good guess. Incorrect. Arabic. Judeo, either Arab Jews spoke, millions and millions and millions of Jews spoke uh, up until the, the creation of the state of Israel. Really, Arabic was the lingua franca of millions of Jews throughout Arabic-speaking countries, Arabic or Judeo-Arabic. And similarly, a thousand years ago, Judeo-Arabic was the most widely spoken language amongst the Jewish people. And so Arabic and Judeo-Arabic is the most widely represented language of the Geniza documents as well. But there was a lot of Hebrew. There, was, there were Persian documents, Judeo-Persian documents, Greek documents, Judeo-Greek documents. There was some Latin. Um, there was also a lot of trade between Cairo and, and India. So there are a lot of Indian languages represented as well. By the way, all these documents I'm showing you, I've had the hand, chance to show, to hold almost all of them in my hands. They're usually in glass or plastic, but I've held mo most of them. The original of this document is about that big or so. What language do you think it's written in? Hindi. H Hindi, a very good guess. Incorrect, but a good guess. What? San Sanskrit? Another very good and very incorrect guess. Aramaic. Aramaic. Nope. The, the answer is you probably don't know what language it's written in because scholars have studied this at great length and haven't been able to figure it out. <laughs> it's in some sort of an Indian language, but it, it's unidentifiable. It's a mystery language. Um, uh, wait a minute. Let me... Come on. Come on. There we go. Why does that do that? It goes the wrong direction. Let's see if we... Or maybe you can just move my computer over a little bit. Just move my computer over a little bit. There we go. Okay, now, this is very cool. This is called a palimpsest, which is, comes from the Greek meaning re-scraped. These days, we have a lot of paper in our homes, right? We have, it clutters up our offices, we have paper on the walls, there books lining the shelves, but that wasn't always the case. Paper wasn't always as plentiful as it is today. So that it, there were times and places where if you needed to write something out, you wouldn't necessarily have that fresh ream of, of paper from, from Staples or Office Depot to grab a sheet from and write. And what would you do in that case? Well, what you might do is you might take an already written on sheet of paper, erase it, and then write over it. But what you might not realize if you did that is that if that sheet of paper were to be somehow preserved, like maybe, I don't know, in a Geniza or something, 
then over the course of the centuries to follow, the residue of the original ink that you had erased would undergo a, a, a chemical reaction with the ambient air, and at least in part, the old text would, would begin to return. So what you'd be left with at the end was a, a document with a darker, newer overcoat of text, and then hovering faintly in the background would be the, the, uh, the, the fainter, but usually very discernible and, le le and legible remains of the original text on that piece of, pa of paper. So here you have an example of this. You see uh, from right to left on this page is a page of Talmud written in the 11th century. But if you look carefully, you can see that perpendicular to, that, to the Aramaic and Hebrew of the Talmud is uh, the faint rem remnants of a psalm, the uh, uh, Greek translation of a psalm written in the seventh century. So what does that mean? It means that one day in the 10 hundreds, a scribe needed to write out a page of Talmud. He didn't have any paper around. What am I going to use? What am I going to use? Here, I'll use this old thing. He grabs a 400-year-old Greek psalm, erases it, writes his Talmud over it, only to have, over the centuries that followed, that Greek start to come back. And you're left with a fascinating two-layered uh, uh, document like this, a palimpsest. There were dozens of these in the Geniza. This is not a document from the Cairo Geniza. This is from a book called Lishoni. It's also called Sha'ar Hakriya. It's the it's the it's a Hebrew a children's Hebrew reading primer. It's the one from which I learned to read Hebrew. I see some other people's heads nodding. That might be familiar to you. I've taught out of this book as well. And again, it's a children's reading text. So on the right side of the page, you have nonsense syllables: ah, ah, eh, eh, ah, ah, ba, be, ba, ba, etc. To teach the children how to read. And then on the left side of the page, Page, you have stories. Here's the shortest story in the book, all of five letters long. Abba Ba, Daddy Comes. Right? And uh, it's Don Draper meets Judaism right there. <laughs> so, lest you think, that, however, that, that it was only in the 1950s, this book was reprinted a few hundred times, I think, but lest you think it was only in the 1950s that we began to use such books, you should look at the documents. From, uh, from the Cairo Geniza, because here you have similarly a children's reading primer that, that was found in the Geniza, and on the top, sure enough, ah, ah, eh, eh, ah, ba, 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 ba. You see the menorah here, and then what do you see here? Stars of David. This is one of the earliest Jewish, uh, the ear earliest examples of a Jewish document featuring that as a decoration. This is one of the first appearances of what we now call the Star of David on a Jewish document. There is a uh, swath of this, of this uh, document on the cover of my book. And when my book was when it first came out, my congregation had a big party. And you know how you can transfer photographs onto cake, right? Onto sheet cake. So they had a, a, an image of my book. On the, on the sheet cake. And afterwards, I sent a picture of it to the head of the Geniza collection at Cambridge. I said, uh, you know, as far as I know, this is the first time that we've seen a, uh, an, an image of a manuscript from the Cairo Geniza rendered in cake. Uh, <laughs> and he responded, yes. And, you know, I don't see a credit to the Cambridge University Library on that cake. <laughs> I said it's on the inside. So, um, 
Uh, okay, let's see, what, what else do we have? If we ever, there we go. Uh, now, there were a lot of famous Jews who lived in Cairo. Among them was the famous Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, otherwise known as Maimonides, who lived from 1138 to 1204. Maimonides was arguably one of the greatest Jewish philosophers in history, and we have, since he lived in Cairo, we have a lot of early copies of his work in the Cairo Geniza. Here, for example, you see a page from Moren Nebuchim, his greatest philosophical work, The Guide for the Perplexed. Um, what's interesting about this particular copy, of this particular page from The Guide for the Perplexed is it's written out by hand, of course, by none other than Maimonides himself. He had a very distinctive handwriting, and, and, uh, and this was his original page, uh, an original page from the Guide for the Perplexed, replete with some of his crossouts and his edits in his own hand. Now, I started studying Maimonides when I was in high school. Like Rabbi Cohn in college and rabbinical school, I pulled out my hair trying to understand what he was saying. I, um, I, I, uh, I've, I've taught his stuff since. And to think that eight or, what is it, eight, 900 years ago, a thousand year, years, or eight, 800 years ago, uh, some, uh, Maimonides sat at a ta table and wrote out with a Quill, of course, some the, the, this text, and now I'm holding it in my hands. I can't tell you what an unspeakable thrill that is to hold Maimonides' actual handwritten manuscripts in my hands. They have dozens of Maimonides' manuscripts in the Geniza, including the receipts for his trash pickup. Uh, every, every, everything. <laughs> Now, the early gen generations of Geniza scholars studied primarily what were called the uh, literary manuscripts of the Cairo Geniza. These were the manuscripts that were written to be read over and over again. They were the prayer books and Bibles. They were often made to look, pr to look all pretty and nice. But in the 1950s, this man comes along, Shlomo Dov Goitain, who uh, he was a, a German-born scholar, moved to I Israel in the, tw in the 20s. He uh, later moved to Philadelphia. And he said in the 50s, he said, you know what? Show me, show me everything else. And the everything else were the love letters and the recipes and the medical prescriptions and the court documents and the business records and all of the other papers that, that make up just like we that characterized, that characterized life back then, just like they do for us today. And uh, Goitain spent the remainder of his life, about 35 years, putting together this magisterial six-volume work with small print and narrow margins called A Mediterranean Society, in which he used the documents of the Cairo Geniza to recreate what life must have been like for uh, Jews and for non-Jews living in medieval Cairo? How were their houses laid out? What did their clothing look like? How did the beer taste? What did, uh, how long did it take a letter to get from point A to point, to point B? Uh, it, it, it's a magnificent work that is still bearing fruit today. At one point in the 50s, he was giving a talk in New York about some correspondence that he was studying between Cairo and India. And during the Q&A, somebody raised his hand, their, their hand, one of the, the scholars present, and said, you know, it would be interesting if we could find some correspondence between Maimonides and his brother. 
Now, we know that the great philosopher Rabbi Moses Maimonides had been very close with his younger brother, David Maimonides. David was a very successful merchant who died at sea on a trade voyage to India. And after he died, it sent his brother Moses into a deep depression from which it took him years to, re re to re recover. Uh, and so uh, Goitain said, well, it would be interesting to have some of this correspondence, but I can't just make it up. Well, the next week, Goitain goes to Cambridge, and he asks to see a box of documents that hadn't been studied very closely before. Blindly, he reaches into that box, and the first document that he pulls out is this document, which, it turns out, is not only a letter from David Maimonides to his older brother Moses, but in all likelihood, it was the very last letter that David sent to his brother. It was sent from Idab, which was then a port city on the Red Sea. And uh, David writes of the harrowing journey it had to get to Idab, and he, he said, I haven't found anything to pur purchase here to resell in Cairo. I'm going to go to India and see if I can find anything there. He said, I miss you very very much. I know you miss me. God willing, we'll be together soon. He posts the letter, and a couple of hours later, maybe a couple of days, David gets on a boat and is never seen again. The scholars say that the holes in this manuscript come from the ravages of age. I wonder if instead they might have come from the tears of a grieving brother. What does that document look like? Somebody said, somebody once said, matzah. Uh, I don't know, what did you say, sir? A wedding invitation. A wedding invitation, uh, good guess, not, that's not right. What? A ketubah, also a good guess, no, no. Did somebody say music? You're right. In fact, not only is this a piece of sheet music, this is the oldest known piece of Jewish sheet music in the world. It was written by a man named Ovadia Hager, Obadiah the Convert. Ovadia Hager was born in Italy in the, in the ten hundreds, and he trained as a Catholic monk, and he became one as a matter of fact. And in 1096, he saw the horrors of the First Crusade and was so mortified that he actually converted to Judaism. Whereupon he had to flee Italy and eventually made his way to Cairo where he wrote this music. The music is Gregorian chant. The words are a Hebrew eulogy for Moses. They sat silent in the Geniza for 900 years and now we can hear them again. Moses stood with me upon Mount Horeb, a matter of listening it was. And it goes on from there. Hmm. 
Now, these documents are, of course, very difficult to study because the only way they could, would get into the Geniza, of course, is if they were somehow da damaged or destroyed. And it makes this, the deciphering of these documents very difficult. So here is an example of a document. It was discovered by a professor at Hebrew Union College, my alma mater, Rabbi Collins as well, uh, in the 1920s, Jacob Mann, who, um, uh, in, this is front and back of the same piece of pa paper. It's two le letters, one in Hebrew, one in uh, Judeo-Arabic, I believe, from Fusta to Kairawan. Kairawan is in modern-day Tunisia. There used to be a lot of camels, groups of ca camels that would carry cargo between Cairo and Kairawan, and it's from Kairawan that we get the modern English word. Caravan, right? Um, the, uh, uh, the, this is two letters from Kairouan, and it's about, it's about some sort of an international Jewish political controversy. This was back in the days when different groups of Jews used to argue with each other over various <laughs> matters. Thank God that's, such, that's part of, of such old history. It involved the, the, the difference in, in opinions, a conflict between the, the scholars and lay people from Babylonia and Yemen and, and, and Fustat and Karawat. And it was very difficult for Jacob Mann to understand this, however, because he only had the bottom half of this manuscript. In, over the years, in the crush and the crunch of the Geniza, the top half had gotten torn off, and it made it very difficult for him to decipher the, this document. Similarly, here, here, here's a manu manuscript that was discovered in the 1970s. Uh, the, the first one I showed, showed you was discovered in Cambridge. This was discovered in the 1970s at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, front and back of the same piece of paper. It's, a, it's a two letters about some sort of a, of a medieval, an international Jewish political controversy, only the scholar who discovered, the, discovered this was having a difficult time deciphering it because, of course, he only had the top half of the document. The bottom half had somehow gotten torn off. You can see where this is going. On a tip, he put it together with that other document I showed you a moment ago, and sure, sure, sure enough, they fit together, and, and, and it all made sense. Nowadays, about 200,000 of the Geniza documents are at the, university, at the library of Cambridge University. Another 30 to 40,000 are at the Jewish Theological Seminary, um, and the others are scattered in libraries uh, all around uh, the world, predominantly in Europe and uh, North America and Israel. Um, I've, I actually helped find a few of them right here in Southern California that hadn't been known to the scholarly world, which I can tell you about during the Q&A if you're, in, if you're interested. Um, up until recently, the late 90s, there hadn't been a comprehensive catalog of these manuscripts. But it was then that, uh, that with the help of a, of a philanthropist in Toronto named Albert Friedberg, they started to comp come up with a comprehensive catalog of all the manuscripts wherever they could be found. And then they also brought some very high-tech, they, they started to, to digitize the collection and apply some very high-tech to tools um, in order to uh, make sense of what they have. So they use uh, artificial intelligence software. They use face, res face recognition technology that they use to identify terrorists and airports and such. And now the, the computer was able to do things like spit out a list of all of the documents in the Cairo Geniza that were penned by a certain scribe. 
And they've been able to identify hundreds more of these joins, or thousands more, actually, of these joins, uh, wherever they might be. So they're sort of reassembling this international jigsaw puzzle of manuscripts that had gotten all jum jumbled up in the Cairo Geniza. You, it's called the Friedberg Geniza Project. Um, uh, anybody who has a password can get onto their webpage. I've got one. And uh, so here, here, here's a screenshot from their webpage of one of the manuscripts I just showed you. And at the very least, what it allows readers to do is to zoom in on, uh, on one word. And eventually it gets pixelated, but you have the ability to zoom in on one word, that word being Hebrew scholars, echad, which means... One, you can zoom in on one word, and you can see how much more how much more le legible the uh, the Geniza becomes. And so you have here the current home of the new location, if you will, albeit a virtual one, of the Cairo Geniza. This happens to be in a high-rise office building in Jerusalem where, where the Friedberg Geniza project, Project's technical offices are. It's ironic because the people who assembled the Geniza originally, they wanted to hold on to the physical documents. They didn't really ever care to read them again. Nowadays, it's the opposite is true. Nowadays, we can read them all we want. We just can't always get our hands on the physical objects. Well, as I'm researching this book, I realize, you know, I should probably get my go to see the Cairo Geniza, right? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be an expert in this. It would be a good thing for me to go and see it. Well, little did I know what kind of an undertaking that would end up being. I, it, took me, it, it took me hundreds of emails all over the world in order to arrange this. First, I had to figure out who owns the thing. There was a woman in Cairo, Cairo who since died. She was the head of the... Jewish community of Cairo, the JCC, uh, and she claimed to be in charge of the Geniza, but actually it was owned by, the, as I said, the Egyptian government. And after a few hundred emails, I finally got the right, the right contact, and I was uh, um, uh, given permission to visit the Geniza by Dr. Zahi Hawass. You, some of you, if you watch National Geographic or other things on TV, you may be familiar with him. This is an archaeologist. He's in his 60s. He was, at the time, the head of the uh, Supreme Council of Antiquities of Egypt. He was in charge of the pyramids and the Sphinx and King Tut and the whole schmear. And um, this is a guy, uh, he, you see him on these National Geographic specials in an Indiana Jones-type hat, and he says things like, um, he brings camera crews into these tombs, and he says, you know, nobody has been in this tomb for 3,500 years. Here, I will flip on the light switch and show you. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and so... So he gave me his permission to go. I was, I was t t telling my son, Jacob, who's then 15, about this trip. He insisted that, that he go with me. We decided that we would, on the way there, we, we, we would stop in Cambridge, see some Geniza sites, meet some Geniza people, do the same thing in New York on the way home. And let me get this. Uh, and in two, this is now back in 2010. It's going the wrong way again. Uh, February of 2010, Expedition Geniza commences. My brother designed this, lo lo this logo. We had it put on T-shirts uh, and, um, uh, and uh, on the appointed point today, we went to the airport and... 
off we went. Our first stop. <laughs> if you knew how, how, how much time it took to make that, that, that slide, you would um, Our first stop was in Cambridge, and we can imagine Solomon Schachter, this Hasidic rabbi, walking around Cambridge. It's a magnificent place. I don't know if any of you have been there. And it's very un-Jewish, right? So you can ima- ima- imagine Solomon Schachter just, just walking around th- this place. Um, and we went to Castlebray, um, uh, and we, we, we walked now to dorm, as I said. This is the, 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 this is the office of the administra- administrator of the dorm. It was originally, however, the dining room. You can see the old Victoria, part of the old Victorian fireplace here. I was talking to the administrator of the dorm. I said, are you aware of the worlds of history that unfolded right here? Because this is where Schechter saw the first... Page of Ben Sira made the connection with the Cairo Geniza. Are you aware of what happened right here in your office? And just then a student walked in very politely interrupted and said, excuse me, Terry, do you have my trousers? And it was just one of these kind of funny mo- mo- moments. Um, that's the, the home of Solomon Schechter with the blue door, wife, as long as my name, as long as the Bible lives, my name will not die. That's where he burst through. Um, uh, th- th- this is the... Uh, uh, the, that, that, let me see if I can, that's the, li, the library, hardly the most beautiful building at the university, but the Geniza collection is run by this guy, Dr. Ben Althwaite, out of a small warren of offices in the library. Now, when you go to these big university libraries with collections of rare books and manuscripts, you can somehow, sometimes get into the manuscript reading room where they bring you the manuscripts to read. But um, what we were able to arrange was uh, to get a full tour of the place. We, we, we saw them, uh, 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 we saw the conservators dealing with these documents. They had just found uh, several months before a, 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 a cache of, of about 7,000 documents that they were restor- conserving. There's a word, not conserving. It's not, uh, but they, they were de- de- dealing with these, uh, uh, flattening them, uh, halting the tearing. If the, if the ink was starting to flake, they would put it under the microscope and put some chemicals under each flake to keep it from continuing to flake off. They do about four of these a day. They had 7,000 of these they were dealing with. Um, and then we got to go into the manuscript storage room where they store these manuscripts. And as we're walking back toward the Geniza collection, Jacob elbows me, he said, Dad, that was the Darwin Isle. Well, you know, like the Charles Darwin's papers are just a couple aisles over from where the Geniza is. You know, the original Beagle Diaries, it's right there in the same room. Isaac Newton's stuff is in the same room. And this aisle and one and a half more like it are the home of, is the home of the... um, uh, of the largest collection of antiquarian Jewish manuscripts in the world. All the Maimonides stuff, the poetry, the love letters, the whole schmear. Um, this is the, they, they, whoop, uh, let me go back here, hang on. Sorry, I don't want to ruin the surprise. There's going to be some more music. Uh, the, um, they didn't want to um, throw anything away, so that when these flakes of the manuscripts fell to the bottom of the boxes, and they saved that as well. I called it Geniza dust, almost like a... You, know, you can sprinkle you with Geniza dust and see what happens. So from there, believe it or not, the journey continued, swooping over the Mediterranean. 
We got to Cairo. Uh, now, before I went to Cairo, uh, I got an email from when I was ma- trying to make these arrangements from a, a woman who'd grown up in Cairo, now lives in Israel. She said, Rabbi, you need to be very careful when you go to Cairo. There are going to be people who won't want you to get into their Geniza. You will be under constant government surveillance from the moment you arrive. Be very careful whatever you do, but you're going to have a great time, she said. <laughs> When I was in England, I thought I should um, maybe go and see, remember Q? Was that James Bond's guy who get an acid-shooting yarmulke or some, something to it? But um, I didn't do that. But sure enough, when we got to Cairo, we got waved through some lines at the airport. It was like they sort of knew who we, we were. Uh, it was very definitely a, a strong police there was definitely a strong police presence. This was a year, almost exactly a year before the balloon went up in Cairo, before the Arab, the Arab Spring, when there were certain changes in that country, uh, in, e- e- in Egypt. Uh, we, hi- we hired a guide. Um, you can hire a guide and a driver for three days. It was $180. Two, a guide and then a separate driver with a, va- a van. Uh, and so the first day, we... Uh, Got our lay of the, the land. Oh, I said to our guide, I said, uh, tomorrow we'd like to see the pyramids and the Sphinx and the Egypt Museum. Fine, fine. And then the next day, we, we need to go to Fustat. Fine. And uh, uh, we'd like to go to the Ben Ezra Synagogue. Fine. And uh, we made arrangements to see the Geniza. She said, oh, no, you can't, you can't see the Geniza. The Geniza's off limits. I said, well, I have a, l- l- a letter here from Dr. Hawass. She said, Dr. Zahi Hawass? I said, yes. The discussion ended very quickly there. Um, a friend of mine, an archaeologist, said, you know, you need, to be, you, need to, you need to know, Glickman, that you can show up there. And remember, it's Egypt. So um, Dr. Hawass had said that his associate, Mr. Mustafa, would meet me at the synagogue and make sure everything goes okay. He said, you can get there and your friend Mr. Mustafa will be on vacation. I had called Mr. Mustafa ahead of time, calling him from about three in the morning, our time, to get in touch with him during business hours then. He said, oh yeah, yeah, just, yeah, I, I know who you are. I'll, I'll be there, sure. Uh, just call me a couple days before to remind me. I was, okay. He said, and what was the synagogue you wanted to see again? He didn't instill me with very much con- con- confidence. But um, uh, on the, the point, point today, we went into Fustat. We saw signs immediately to the Ben Ezra Synagogue. We, could, we found it, and sure enough, it looks just like a dozen pictures, as you can tell. And um, we walked into the synagogue. Jacob loved taking this picture. Um, uh, and um, at first, Mr. Mustafa wasn't there, um, the, uh, uh, and there was some back and forth. But fi- finally, he showed up. He introduced me to the caretakers of the synagogue. He said, this is Rabbi. Oh, I, sh- I should also add... At the time, we didn't think that anybody had been in the Geniza since 1911, 99 years before. This was 2010. The last documents were taken out in 1911. We didn't think that anybody had been in there since, any outsiders at least. Turns out a few people had, but very few. I'm certainly the only, the first rabbi who had been in there since Solomon Schechter, and we were among the first visitors to be there since 1911 from from the, the outside. So Mr. Mustafa shows up, he introduces me to the caretakers, he says, this is Rabbi Glickman, he's from the United States, a very important man, he's come to see the Geniza. They nod their heads, they walk me outside. I knew why. Uh, and so we, we walked outside, and we, we went upstairs across the, br- br- the bridge, we stepped inside, and I got my first glimpse of the Geniza. I took a left and made a couple of rights, and soon 
I was standing right underneath the Cairo Geniza. They put a ladder up, um, and Ari, I'm going to ask you to click there. Thank you. They put a, la la a ladder up to the Geniza. Now, what you're going to see here is a video of my climbing up to the Geniza. I, I, um, I, I, and when I looked into the Geniza, first of all, I got up there, and you'll see the ladder that they gave me wasn't quite adequate to the task. So I could only, it got me about where the threshold of the Geniza was up here. And I looked inside, I couldn't see a thing because it was, it was dark. And when they finally went to get a higher ladder, I remembered that I had a flashlight on my keychain. And I shined it in there and I had the biggest surprise of the trip. Now I realized when I came, I would need a line, right? The first person in the Geniza, I thought at the time, you know, one small step for a rabbi. When, um, <laughs> Uh, my father, who, who's here, said, you should say, Jimmy Hoffa, Amelia Earhart. <laughs> you know, what am I going to say? Well, I, I, I had this surprise when I shined the light into the Geniza, the biggest surprise of the trip, that, uh, I, um, that I proclaimed, and then just a moment after I proclaimed this big surprise, we ran, the, the memory card on the camera ran out. So you're going to see me announce this surprise the moment this, this, um, this ends. Caretakers, the man in the jacket is Mr. Mustafa. There are other people standing behind me. I'm up high on the balcony. It's a tense moment. See what he did? He didn't want me to scuff the restoration. I have a bad knee, too, so. Now I remember the, the flashlight. Getting the flashlight. Now, <laughs> there was a floor, of course, but for the years of re research I had done on this story, I had always just assumed that the floor was right there, right? Maybe right there. Oh, no, no, no. The floor, in actuality, was 20 or more feet down. 
Uh, I don't think my friend Mr. Mustafa was trying to kill me off. He, he didn't know. It's just that nobody had known that what was there. What we think, they built the Geniza because it's so far away from the cemetery. They built the Geniza. turns out, I discovered, more like a silo than an, a- an attic so that they wouldn't ever have to empty it out. They did have a way at the bottom to pull documents out from the bottom into a room down below, but there's no evidence of them ever having used, used it. And so... There we call this the famous Tuchus picture, and uh, there you see the first usable photograph ever taken of the Cairo Geniza. The bags in the on the floor are labeled salt, which one of my friends suggested might stand for sacred ancient literary treasure, <laughs> but probably just stood for salt. Uh, they probably threw it in there when they were doing renovations in the 1990s to keep things dry. Um, So, from Cairo, the journey continued. And we ended up in New York. And here, uh, let me go back. There I am with Rabbi John Schechter, the great-grandson of Rabbi Solomon Schechter. As he and I were talking, we realized that he grew up just about three miles from where I grew up, outside of Chicago. And in the 1970s, at Olin Sang Ruby Union Institute camp in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, he was my camp counselor. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's showing me some of his fa- family heir- heirlooms there. They're, uh, restoring manuscripts at JTS as well. Here I am, I'm paging uh, through, I'm sitting with the director of the library at JTS, paging through a Passover Haggadah. In fact, it's an old Passover Haggadah. It's not just old, it's really old. In fact, it's not just really old. It's one of the two oldest known Passover Haggadahs known to exist in the world. Dates back to about the year 1000. So old, there are only two questions. Um, (laughs) From New York, the journey continued back to Seattle, where we lived at the time. And uh, uh, that's actually not the homecoming picture. By the time we got home, we were so tired, we we could barely stand up. That's our departure picture. Uh, And here, by the way, is really my my book sitting on some real Geniza documents. I'm told that... Down there, it, stands, it says Habahir Karasa, which is Judeo-Arabic for this book, which is kind of cool. Um, you've been sitting for a long time. I just want to end with a couple of, com- of comments, and then if we have time for questions. Um, first of all, um, how many of you have Genizas at home? <laughs> I see a few hands, but you know what? Almost all of your hands should be up. I mean, you might not have a room for damaged and destroyed prayer books and Torah scrolls, but you do have that drawer, don't you? Or that corner of your closet or attic with that box, you know, with the, the lawnmower manuals from two or three mowers ago and maybe a floppy disk. Remember those? Uh, People ask me, why did they hold on to all these documents? And the the answer I give is that anybody who has ever taken a look at a sheet of paper, any sheet of paper, a receipt, a check stub, a letter, whatever it is, and said said to themselves, am I going to need this thing? I'm not going to need it. I'm just going to throw it away. Well, maybe I'll need this. Now, whether or not you end up saving it, you you can understand what I call the Geniza impulse, right? (laughs) We... 
we hold on to these old pieces of paper because they connect us with other times and across time and across space with other people. They allow us really to transcend ourselves and the immediacies of our own life. And that's what makes them so ma magical. Solomon Schechter gets back to Cambridge, studies the Geniza manuscript for about five years, and then is hired as president of the newly reorganized Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. He comes to New York, there's a big gala inauguration for him, and he gives a speech during which he discusses his years of Geniza research. And he says, in the course of this speech, he says that, if, that the study of old documents, if you engage in it in the study in the proper spirit, namely to aggrandize God rather than yourself, he said to study these old documents then is to commit what he, he described as an act of resurrection in miniature. You study an old slip of paper, a letter, a receipt, whatever it is, and something from someone else's life long ago, it comes alive, if only for a moment. It's that opportunity to perform these countless acts of resurrection in miniature that has, been, that has made studying the Cairo Geniza and its contents such a thrill. And it's that opportunity which makes it such an honor to be able to share with you today. Thank you all very, very much for listening. What? What? There's one more slide. There's, oh, there's one more slide, yes. Uh, oh, I don't know how that got in there. That was supposed to be edited out. Um, but uh, there we go. Uh, so. We'll take a few questions. A few questions. Yes, ma'am. Well, the, uh, uh, the, I've read, read about this, and my read of, of it is not the same as yours. They, they did find in the pyramid what they described as a void. The archaeologists carefully described, refrained from calling it a secret chamber, a hidden chamber. But they're, they're not sure what it is, but there is a void in one of these pyramids, and they don't know what's there. It may have just been a construction quirk. Yeah. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen that. Uh, yes. Two questions. Yes, sir. First of all, if the Geniza was supposed to be a repository of sacred objects, okay, why were... Love letters and children's school books. Yes. So that's question one. Okay. Question two is, if there had been so many other people that had come and taken documents out of the Geniza before the big hoard was taken out, I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there, mm -hmm. and why didn't the earlier ones get to some of the pieces that you described that came out later? Okay, so the first question, what, what were the love letters and the recipes and the medical prescriptions and all of that stuff doing in there if it's for sacred documents? There's a, a few answers to that question. First, um, uh, the definition of what constitutes a sacred document seems to have waxed and waned over the years. Uh, at some points, it, at one point, it was only biblical texts that were, uh, were, were considered sacred. Then there were times when, the men, when any text mentioning God was considered sacred. Then there were times when anything in Hebrew at all was considered sacred. And in Cairo, in the Middle Ages, it was such a literate society that there, there seemed to be some 
there, there's a sense that any written document at all had a, a modicum of sanctity about, about it. But and the second reason is that even if you take it only as, say, sacred documents, sacred passages, or mentions of the name of God, uh, that would render documents s sacred. Uh, there was, back in the Middle Ages, especially in Arabic, there was a lot more God talk in their normal daily parlance. Now, nowadays, of course, typically, the only time somebody mentions God when you're out there doing your errands is if someone sneezes, right? God bless you. But then, you would, if you would write a note about some business matter, you might say, you know, to my most esteemed friend, Mr. M Musa ben David, may uh, God's blessings be upon you. And then all of a sudden, you've got a sacred doc document. And we can picture a scenario in which, you know, grandpa dies, and he's got a pile of documents in the corner, and the grandchildren are standing around and saying, well, some of these should probably go in the Geniza. Do you want to go through and figure out which ones you need to? I don't want to go. Let's just dump them all in. And so they would throw them all, all in. And your se second document was, why, did, why were so many treasures left for Schechter? They only let a few people in, and, and um, nobody really had the scholarly uh, 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 strength, the, the abilities that Schechter had. And Schechter was really driven there by Ben Sira. He, you know, it was Ben Sira that took him there. He went there to see if he could find some more Ben Sira. Turns out he found much more than, more than that as well. Uh, but there were documents all, all over, thousands of documents even then. Schechter may have even seen some before he got there. In the, in the back, there was a question, I believe. This was before paper shredders. Yes. <laughs> what, what? It was before paper shredders, yes. I presume the piece that Schechter saw from the sisters was from one of the documents taken, one of the pieces taken by one of those two gentlemen in the earlier centuries. What percentage of those two gentlemen's looting, taking has been, you estimate, been recovered? Well, there, there were a few people who, who went there. I, I didn't discuss them all. There were a few uh, others who went there. And then there was that Austrian count that I don't have time to go into. You should read the book. Um, available in audiobook as well, and the e-book e formats. But, um, uh, they're, they're, we don't know exactly where the first page of Ben Sira was from. The Giblus said they purchased it on the plain of Sharon, which is a weird thing to say. No, you know, if you've been to Israel, if you've been to the plain of Sharon, I mean, it's d described in the Bible. It's somewhere over near Tel Aviv, I think. But nobody talks about that. And it's thought that, when, that they might have lied. Frankly, there's been some recent scholarship saying that they might have actually bought it in Cairo. There were people sort of going in and out of there, and they didn't want other scholars to be on the, on the to get their hands on this stuff. So they tried to send them off the track, perhaps by sending, saying that they were on the plane of Sharon. So the short answer is we don't know exactly where they got their document, but there were other there there were a handful of documents that were floating around even before Schechter got there. Did I answer your question? Oh, uh, well, Schechter, uh, Schechter, got, Schechter came away with about two-thirds of, of the documents. And the rest, there, there, were, there, were, there, there were about probably, my, guess, my estimate is about 20,000 20, before um, that, that had been taken out, and then many more. The last documents, as I said, were taken out in 1911. But Schechter, so there were probably about 20,000 or so that had been out in circulation um, 
or maybe, and I, must have been fewer, probably closer to 10,000. They were out in circulation before that. Let's take three yes. more questions. What, what, three more questions, yes. What is there in that silo now? A couple bags of salt. That's it. If there were man, if there were manuscripts still there, I wouldn't have been allowed to visit. So all that's in the, the Geniza now is just a couple bags of salt to keep things dry. Um, yes, yeah, Mel. This is a story of the Cairo Geniza. Yes. Are there Genizas in other? Places? Good, good question. There, there are Genizas in other places, but they're nowhere near as as uh, as, as magnificent of a find as the Cairo Geniza. What you have in the Cairo Geniza, you see. You know, there are a lot of old synagogues. There have been a lot of synagogues built through the ages with Genesis, but as, you, as any student of Jewish history knows, synagogues, they have a way of burning down rather suddenly and, or being deserted rather suddenly. In Cairo, you have a combination of factors. You have a, um, a, a, a Jewish community that has lived in the same place, relatively unmolested for many centuries. Jews did far better under Islam than they did under Christianity, historically. Um, so they, they lived in the one place. Uh, uh, they thrived for a long time, and you have a dry climate. climate. They, they all combine to make this the mother of all Genesis. Uh, one more. Uh, yes, sir, make it good. Um, well, one, one observation. I think we're incredibly lucky to have you as a speaker. Oh, well, thank you very much. But apropos that, what was it that inspired you to be a student of... Of the Geniza. Um, what turned me on to the story to begin with? I, uh, uh, I was listening to a podcast of a man who had written, a man named Burton Dzatsky, who had written a novel loosely based on some manuscripts and correspondence that he had found in the Geniza. And I said, well, you know, I'd heard about the Geniza when I was in rabbinical school. It's a fascinating story. And I went to find it, to find a write-up, an accessible write-up of the Cairo Geniza. Turns out there are two or 300,000 books and articles written in conjunction with the Cairo Geniza, but most of them are only about one document or a small group of documents, and the vast majority is very scholarly, wonky kind, kinds of stuff. So I went to find an accessible uh, account of it, and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find one, and I emailed Dr. Vizotsky, and he basically said, no, there isn't one. And just then I read Schechter's account of his visit to the Geniza, in which he described the Geniza as a battlefield of books, right? The dead bodies strewn all over the place in utter chaos. And I thought, a battlefield of books? That would be a great title for a book about the Geniza. I'm going to write a book called The Battlefield of Books about the Geniza. That didn't end up being the title of my book, but it is the title of a chapter in my, in my book. And so that turned me on to it. And I've always loved old books and manuscripts and the stories they tell. So it was... It, it just sucked me into its vortex. Thank you all very, very much. It's been such a great